0: Welcome to Property and Investing with Grant and Charlie, the place where we give you access to all the strategies, tools, and tactics to become a successful property investor. Charlie, have you ever thought about getting someone else to sign up to our newsletter and then forward you the emails instead of you actually receiving them in your own inbox? Seems like a very passive way to go about being on the email list. Super passive way, but you are leveraging something else. Someone else's time, someone else's effort. and. It might just relate to something we're talking about today. So if you're sitting there saying, maybe I just want to do this. Maybe I want to sign up someone else's email address. I don't recommend it. It's called spam. But hey, you do you. Head over to propertyinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. Put in someone else's name and
1: email or your own. Either or, hit subscribe. I'm not sure we can say that. I think that's like against email list consumer laws, right? I feel like that's the thing you don't do. Don't do. Well, at least it's not financial advice. Screw it. Let's, Let's cue your disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Property and Investing, and I need to let you know that Grant and I and the Property Investing team are in no way, shape, or form qualified to give you financial advice. We strongly encourage you to seek out and use professionals when comparing investment products or making investment decisions. All right, Grant, I actually have to laugh because there is an email list you have signed up for that forwards to my email address. There is <laughs> it. started with one email and I'm like, oh, could you forward a couple of these through and it's been going for maybe a year now?
0: Dude, I and to be clear, I, I
1: read them. <laughs> I <forgot.
0: laughs> and I, no, I remember which one it was. Yes, I did. Yes. And
1: you're welcome. You are welcome. See, I relate to this episode very well. All right, well, today we're doing a listener Q&A. So just a reminder for people that do want to send in their questions, you can either reply to one of the emails. You would have to be on the list to do that, though. It wouldn't work through being vicariously through someone else's email. It would be like a forwarded email reply. Maybe it it would work.
0: Maybe you'd reply back to your friend who would then forward it on.
1: Yeah. You know what? Actually, if someone does that, I give them credit.
0: It's a a good friend.
1: It is a good friend. I'll play that as well. Um, Or you can come in the Facebook group, shoot us something in there, or you can just directly email me at charlie at Is it .au, Grant? I never remember. .com. Just .com. All right, .com. propertyandinvesting.com. Where, the, where those guys? I like it. It's a good domain name. It's a great domain name. I will talk about this on another episode at some point around investments. But um, would you believe that uh, one of the domain names I bought many years ago, which you'd consider a piece of real estate? Oh, I just got an offer for it for five grand US. And I bought this one for, I think it was like 20 bucks about three years ago.
0: (laughs) Yep. And I'm on the opposite side. I got way too many domains that I paid way too much money for
1: that I don't use. (laughs) We can dive into that at some point (laughs) on my real estate. Uh, Well, today we're talking about REITs. Which is an interesting topic, and I will double flag this one as not financial advice. I want to be very clear: I am not comfortable recommending reits or specific reits for anyone's circumstances, or even the types of reits, because that would be negligent of me. I will declare right now: I am not an expert on the topic. However, I've done a bit of digging into them to understand them.
0: Way too, you know, way too much information about reits, and you're being kind to yourself. This is something you've done more than just dig into. <laughs> You have buried deep into the soul of what a REIT is and how it works.
1: All right. Well, I'll tell you what I was contemplating at one point before we dig into this listener question. For me, one of the things I struggled with at a point in my own portfolio was actually finding opportunities, right? I was looking for properties and I couldn't find anything that fit my criteria. And I had toyed with the idea of refinancing my property portfolio to extract equity And people know that I'm not a fan of that in general, right? But for this method, it would actually work. But taking some of that refinanced money and then putting it into REITs. So it would be utilizing the leverage in my what I'll call direct property portfolio. Properties, you know, I can go touch and say, this is mine. Although I guess you could do that with a REIT as well. But it's like the ones I directly have 100% ownership of. Once you get the title of, got it. Well, yeah, perfect. Let's do that and utilize the leverage I've created in my own portfolio. So again, relevering that up. So essentially I've kind of creating leverage and using debt from my existing properties to invest that into REITs. And that was my idea of like, how could I be more expansive, you know, expand further or extend my, you know, shoe print or whatever you want to call it to keep playing the game of investing.
0: There's so much to what you've just said because of gaps and things that don't exist within REITs explicitly, that that leverage would have unlocked for you. Do you want to take us into the deep, dark depths? Because we haven't even explained what REITs are for anyone who's listening to this. I went too far, did
1: I? No, no. You've done well. You've dangled the carrot very nicely. Maybe I have. <laughs> right, so for anyone that is uh, uninitiated, a REIT is a real estate investment trust. Right, and there's two versions of these that I'd like to unpack. There's a listed version and an unlisted version. All right Now, the listed versions are the ones that you can actually trade like you would trade an ETF or a stock. you'd right, It's done through a brokerage, like you might have a ComSec account or something like that of that nature, and you buy and sell them like you would buy and sell shares or stocks. Yep. Um, there's some huge pros with those, which you may go into momentarily. The other version, um, and this is where the interesting ones are, in my opinion, is the unlisted ones. So these are companies where you can buy and sell, again, a a share in this REIT, but they're not um, listed on the stock market. They're actually done through the company directly.
0: So So, you buy a share direct to the company and transact that way as opposed to going through, in your example, the ComSec.
1: Yeah, I just want to frame out one more thing. People often confuse REITs and syndicates Right, a syndicate is where a group of people would get together and maybe do a development, and at the end of the development, they might sell the whole thing and get their cash back, or finish with they get one property each. Yep, that's different again. Right, and again, that might be done inside a trust structure. Um, and I won't go too deeply into that or try and conlude these topics, but just separate that one out. Right, that main that is not the thing in it there. So REITs have some really good pros, I will say, but they also have some some really big cons. So I feel on the nature of what we're discussing so far, it'd be probably wise to unpack some of that a little bit further.
0: Yes, please. Let's do
1: it. Okay. So our listener who sent in a question has referenced the idea that they're living overseas and their big challenge is they want to be invested in more property within Australia, which is their strategy and their circumstance, right? And they're having a hard time getting finance. So they can't go and get a mortgage like they had hoped, like many of us who live in Australia can do. Now, for whatever reason in their circumstance, if you don't have access to being able to get a mortgage, it's pretty hard to play the game of real estate. Completely. And yeah. It well, makes it more challenging when you live
0: overseas. I've, I've bought a house as I'm going overseas and that's just way too complicated.
1: It's just… Hugely so. It's possible, but… Super challenging. You also tend to, if you live here, get a mortgage and then move overseas, the government likes to screw you as well. But we'll save that for another day.
0: I was gonna I was gonna say, you know, the harder one is like buying something in Queensland and having to try to find a justice of peace overseas. Oh. <laughs> like in my mind I'm like, oh, I just couldn't imagine
1: trying to figure that out. It's hard enough to do it when you're here, <laughs> let alone overseas. Completely. Oh, I didn't even think of that. All right. So coming back to this, if you're someone that's overseas, can't get access to a mortgage and you're looking for a way to invest in real estate and you're just not a cash buyer, like REITs present a unique opportunity for you because you can uh, essentially invest in real estate assets in Australia, uh, either listed or unlisted. So I do think they have a purpose and serving. I mean, clearly the asset class has taken off. Like There's a place for them in the world and even for uh, many, many people, they offer a different advantage as well, which I'll go into now, which is the more passive nature of them. All right, So just like there are ETFs that are very passive where you don't go in and control businesses, there's actually like uh, REIT ETFs as well, where there's a whole bunch of them you can invest in. And this is the nature of most REITs, I will say. I don't think there's any REITs where they're actually active. You kind of just buy it and there's a management team in place and they Take responsibility for doing it, right? It's a it's a really interesting dynamic, and probably compares more to like investing in a VC fund. Yep. Right. So very interesting in that way.
0: I love your analogy around the VC fund because it comes down to liquidity, which is one question that I want to ask you in in one moment. So you mentioned about before about how like they are different to syndicates, like a real estate investment trust or a REIT, is different to the syndicates where people get into a project and they might sell it down and take the profits or they might own a little piece themselves or whatever how is it different is it different in the scale of things is it different because you don't actually get a piece of the actual physical pie like you do in a syndicate like where is that difference line if you could just expand on that for us
1: okay so we'll start with syndicate like syndicates tend to have a defined outcome Right. At the end, you get this and it'll take this long. We're yeah. going to develop G3, this property G3. at the end or like three people get together. They do a three townhouse development. At the end, each person gets one townhouse, their own title. You do what you want with it. Or they might come together and say, we're going to redevelop this thing, sell the whole thing, and then you get your cash back at the end. Yep. Right. So that tends to be the nature of syndicates where it's either you get your own title for an apartment or a townhouse or a property or a block of land or whatever it is. Um, Versus we sell the whole project and you get your cash back with some sort of return you're expecting to get. That's defined. Um, with um, REITs though, they never. a lot of them are just like never-ending.
0: It's like a business. It's designed to continue to go and grow and generate profits, build their asset base. There is no finite endpoint of the REIT, albeit assets within that portfolio or that REIT itself might Change. they might sell it they might acquire new ones etc but it's with the design for it to go forever
1: yeah and, and REITs have different strategies as well like for example and I'll just use some of these right now like one of the listed REITs is national storage yep so uh I mean the name kind of says it doesn't it yeah, they, McDonald's chains right like <laughs> well, they do fast food
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah so they do like storages under the brand of national storage
1: completely so they just they have land they own There are businesses that operate on that land, which are storage facilities, and they keep building that out and doing more of it. They expand and they, you know, just like there's renters of houses, there's people that rent the storage units. And that's how it all works. Is it true that there are more
0: commercial REITs than residential REITs? I don't think there's any residential REITs. and So it's just all commercial?
1: Right, so I should take that back. That's a listed sense. Like I've looked, and that may have changed in the moment right here, but the thing I would look at is like a REIT tends to have a strategy. So whether it's listed or unlisted, they tend to have something they do. And like there's, if you were to go on Google right now and just search for the list of Australian REITs, you get a a whole bunch of them and there's some really unique ones out there. So national storage, as I said, like they do storage. There's industrial REITs. There's Mervac. There's Stocklands that do, you know, big greenfield estates. I ASX. believe, I can't remember the name of it, but there's like a REIT out there that just does the land that Bunnings operates on. They do that type of property. The Bunnings so,
0: land REIT. Yeah, well,
1: if I reshaped this conversation quickly and I'm like, dude, there's different businesses that, in li- that are listed on the ASX. You know, there's companies that are banks. There's mining. companies that are mining, right? <laughs> you know, like you're like, of course there is. Like, what are, you, what are you trying to say here? I'm like, well, REITs are kind of the same. There's... Hotels, there's offices, there's uh, some that do developments, there's a whole bunch of things. heaps, yeah. Correct. So not all REITs are created uh, the same or equal and the returns they get can also be very, very different. One of the things that's kind of cool though, and I hinted at this before, is that um, I believe it's VAP is the ticker or MVA is the ticker, which it's like there's ETF REITs. So this is you can buy a share in a group of REITs, which is like a bunch of them put together to – I think the idea would be to diversify there. <laughs> if you just can't choose, you just go with them all. Yeah, well, maybe you want a little bit of exposure to the industrials, a little bit to offices, a little bit to developing, right? There's there's reasons and things that would have that come into play. And I'll just paint a scenario here. Let, let's say you've been a property investor for you know uh, from your 20s to your 70s and you just like cannot be bothered with – managing properties anymore, All right, You're just at this place where you're like, oh, I'm just done with this. The manager's ringing me. To potentially like sell down a portfolio and put it into REITs because you want to be exposed to real estate in some way, kind of makes sense to me. You get to be very passive in nature. You don't have the management responsibility. Like there's for some people, just like people who are overseas who can't access finance, right? It serves a very real purpose, there's also this kind of layer that goes with REITs is like maybe you love the idea of going, do you know what? I love the idea of having Bunnings as my tenant, right? Or investing in hotels, but you just don't have the capability to do that on your own is you can get in with a group of people that are doing that and get exposure to that particular type of real estate. If it's something that, you know, tickles your fancy.
0: Yeah. You can kind of ride your own personal mega trends or trends that you think are happening and get it. And and remove yourself from exposure, which is actually a really good segue into like one of the questions I had around liquidity because, well, it's property investing, Charlie's the podcast. Most people listening to this are either have their own investment properties or looking to get their own investment properties. Um, And we get to choose what we do on these properties. We get to choose if we would like to sell them. And the probability is that we all of us understand that it's going to take us quite a few months to sell a property. If we go today, I want to sell something. It's not like I can click my fingers and it's gone by the end of the day. For REITs, and I would love you to separate it between like the listed REITs versus the unlisted REITs, what's the liquidity time frame like? Are these things really quick to sell, which is where the appeal from it is of going, I can get into real estate, I can get in, I can get out really quickly. Is there
1: some kind of layer that we need to understand
0: from it or is it just trade like a normal share? Uh,
1: so for the listed REITs, I'll start with, they trade on the ASX in this case here, where it's like provide um you can go on and essentially like pretty much any day sell them as long as the markets are open or buy them right now of course there has to be enough volume to support that but in general they're very liquid so yeah, and I use that as a comparison right because they're they're very liquid in comparison to let's say you own a property and you're even going to go sell that with a real estate agent that might take months you might have to prepare the property for sale before you can even list it for sale and then selling it might take several months and then you know you've got settlement which is potentially like 60 days after that like it's a long process to sell a property that you own directly right uh, in uh so you've got highly li- liquid which is uh, the listed ones for that reason alone that might be one of the reasons you go that path if you value liquidity Yeah, um, the second category i mentioned which is the unlisted ones and this is where it gets a little bit hairy In a lot of cases, this could be more liquid or less liquid than a property you own directly. And I just want to explain a scenario. Let's say you invest in a REIT that's, um, we'll we'll make it this one, it's national storage, right? And I want you to pretend that, um, you know, everyone's put in a million dollars. It's 10 people and they've all put a million dollars and they've bought one building that's $10 million. Let's say one person wants out. Where are they going to get the money? They're not going to sell the entire property down for this one person to get out. C- completely they don't and they can't because they'd have to like potentially take a loss in, in the circumstance or there's other lays to this where it's like if you dig more deeply into this, it's like, well, you actually have to sell your share of the REIT. So there has to be another buyer come across or there has to be someone within the organisation where they can create that type of liquidity. Now in some of the bigger unlisted REITs, they actually keep some liquidity to move people in and out of at yep. times. And I'm, I know I'm jokingly, because there's a lot of strict rules around this where I'm like, I don't want to necessarily say, oh, Charlie said this on a podcast, everyone can get in and out. But at times there's some, that they might have a wait list of people that want to buy into a REIT and there's got to wait for someone who actually wants to sell a section of an unlisted REIT. It happens. They're not always open and always like there's closed funds and open funds as well and things to take into consideration, which we may dance into next. But the whole point is, is that in the case where you're in a small REIT, and it's an unlisted one and you wanting your money back and they can't sell the asset, you can end up stuck. Yep. It happens.
0: And it's it's similar, like I've had experience with VC funding and it's similar there where like a VC firm will go and raise a fund and they might call it fund three because they've had two previous funds and they might go and raise, in this example, we'll call it $10 million and then they'll allocate that $10 million to different businesses in order for them to scale up. Now all that money has been allocated elsewhere. And now if one of the people that have actually funded it by like the LP and they say, hey, I just want my money out. And it's like money's been allocated. Like <laughs> what do you mean that you want out? Like how we can't just go and sell the the shares in that business in order for us to get the cash out. We can't ask them for the money back. And that's where you just need to understand what you're getting into because there are a whole heap of different funds for a business sense that just approach this very differently so you mentioned that some of them have cash sitting there so that people can get in get out they have other people that are waiting to buy in buy out where they have ways to value what they've already purchased it is not one size fits all in what you're talking about with uh, unlisted REITs. no different to vcs where it's just like they're not the same <laughs> it's just that you just need to understand exactly what you're getting into as well as if there is a way out and how to get out in that
1: in that scenario Completely, and they tell you this stuff, right? They disclose it. And they're not trying to hide it from you. (laughs) Yeah, completely. Like I looked at one where they said it's like you put your money in and you basically, you can't, there's no request for getting your money or changing things for like I think it was like three years. Yep. And they made that very clear and then they say, well, if you want out, like there has to be a buyer to take your spot. And like the as the… REIT gets valued, the value of your share may change and things like that as well. There's also this whole other layer to it that if you want to sell uh, a section of an unlisted read at a time when the market's down, it devalues everyone else's shares. Because it's actually
0: got that money, like the actual amount is imprinted on that transaction.
1: Yeah. Completely. So it's like if, let's say, in back to my example, you know, 10 people all put a million dollars in, bought a $10 million asset, and then you want to sell yours three months later and you sell it for 600 grand well, what's everyone else's share now worth? You've just, you know, wiped the value out of these things because that's what the market is willing to pay. So, uh, again, like many layers to this, but just if you are going to go into that realm, I think it's really important to understand there's so many different differences. The size of the REIT and it being listed or unlisted can have very different implications of getting money in or out, what potential gains there are. And and I'd also say this in, in a lot of ways is like, you know, there's unique strategies you really need to be aware of. And I'll just share one here is like so you could have two REITs doing the same thing. So let's say they're both in storage. One of them might have the objective of we just want to grow our uh, footprint, want to get bigger. So a lot of their profits and capital raising they do go into getting the fund to be bigger. They're just taking on money, trying to grow. Yep. Where another one might be about they're not necessarily in that. They just want to distribute. So they've got—they're not planning on buying or uh, acquiring any more real estate. They just want to, the dividends that it produces through rental income. They're just paying out, and there's some quite interesting things because—and I might even have to look this up quickly—but it's like the difference between a REIT and a company is really defined, and there's certain rules they have to behave, behave to as well. So I, I believe, and I might even Google this now, is. Um, yeah, I've already searched this before because I've. It's coming up in my browser. I got the Google prompt. <laughs> yeah, so um, a REIT must distribute at least ninety percent of its taxable taxable income in order to meet the REIT test requirements. So if it doesn't do that, it's a company. It will pay tax on the remaining ten percent of that uh, income at a rate of twenty one percent. I'm reading this off Google. I don't know if this yep. is necessarily true either. Not tax advice. Not financial advice. You know, got to say that again. So you can kind of look at this and going, well, if you're a um, a storage company, you're really looking at that of going, well, you can't really retain more than 10%. Yep. Right? You've got to pay out your 90% to get the appropriate tax things to be classified at a REIT and meet your obligations as a REIT. Because you've got to remember when you are a REIT, you have to behave to the rules of ASIC mm-hmm. and all the rest of it as well, where if you are individually investing in property, you kind of get to make these decisions for yourself. Like, am I going to reinvest the profits from my real estate business and buy more properties? Or am I gonna just distribute and, you know, pay down debt or whatever your own strategies at this stage from here? And it's really important to note, like, because that
0: that definition around how a REIT distributes taxable income at 90% to this, again, not financially, but shows that it is completely different to the trust that you might go and own your investment property in which has to distribute 100%, which means this, this just because it has the word trust in it doesn't mean that it's the same as the trust that people might be buying their own investment properties in. It is fundamentally its own vehicle.
1: Well, just to be clear, you don't have to do anything, but it's advised, right? So <laughs> there's implications from it, but I do think that's a, a really, uh, really unique way to put it. And I will say there's some really clever REITs out there that have achieved some like crazy returns. Mm-hmm. So I want you to imagine like, uh, again, it's like why you might be more interested in a REIT. Let's pre- prevent or pretend there's like some savant property investor out there, like someone who's got a unique strategy, knows or, or we'll even use an example, right? There used to be a town planner in like Sydney and they know the, the rules on subdivisions like no one else. And I'm they've got like all them. the relationships and can push things through quickly. And this person says, I'm, I'm doing a, a, a REIT. And like they've got clear, distinct, unique advantage. Is that person potentially going to outperform what other people can do in that market? Yeah, like I could see the advantage of, you know, this person and their rate. Like you might want to get involved in that REIT because of the nature of what they want to do. And I'm just using that as an obvious example. It's not necessarily the one I would go go with here. I, I realize that that probably isn't a great read, But you get the idea. Totally. I'm going, totally going for the feel low REIT. <laughs> But that's one way to look at it. There was other people where it's like uh, they do like very circumstantial REITs. So there's probably someone out there right now doing a REIT in offices. Yeah. Where they're like, hey, we know the office market's getting smashed. Buildings are potentially empty. We're going to go and buy all these assets now while they're down. And over the next 20 years, that's the horizon. We think this is all going to bounce back. It was was like
0: BlackRock or Blackstone or something like that. Went and raised like $10 billion for their commercial
1: funds. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that does disturb me a little bit that they went and just like raised – they've got $10 billion sitting on the sideline waiting for commercial to collapse so they can pick yeah. up cheaps. But, but, the, th- but they are the types of strategies that are done in here and that might be a fund or – re- I don't think that's a read. I think that's a fund think, but it, either way. Another example. But that's that just incredible. an example of like, you know, people apply strategies to these things which make them very appealing versus doing property on their own. But there are um, significant downsides to them that I hope we're expressing as well. So what's the –
0: what is the biggest trade-off that people miss typically when they're looking to compare buying property in their own name, so investment properties in their own name, versus buying REITs? You touched on one before which was awesome, which was the leverage side. So obviously when you buy a share, that is the cash that you're purchasing purchasing it with, it's not like you get a five to one. So in that example, it's I might buy a million-dollar property and I put down 20% deposit and the bank goes and gives me $800,000 and I get the return or the growth on all of it. So the whole million dollars as it goes up in value, I get the return on that. Where in a REIT, when you buy the share, that is the cash that you're putting over to purchase that share. Now, you mentioned right back at the start of the episode the idea of you were thinking about refinancing and using some of that debt to purchase REITs as a way to offset it. Do you want to dive a little bit deeper into that and if there's any other kind of trade-offs between like REITs and your own personal property
1: investing? Well, let's start on the leverage component. Um, So... You have to understand that the REIT itself might be using leverage. So you might invest in a REIT and they might have a certain LVR they run at. So they're using debt in the REIT itself. So you could get leverage within a REIT. You don't – yeah. And again, that's something you would want to look into because maybe the LVR is too high and that's not something you're comfortable with. Or it might be too low and you're like, there's not enough leverage here. But there is leverage that is created within REITs and that does happen. The other side of the balance sheet though is like you personally – is like your, in this case, could be using just straight cash. It's like 100% ownership. There is no mortgage on the money you're using. Now, the strategy I uh, was thinking about, and again, I'm n- this is like high risk. Wild. Like, wild. <laughs> please don't do this. I'm not advocating people to do this. This is for like, what if you refinanced a property and created more debt in your, you know, on with your own self. We'll just call it personally and then use that money to invest in REITs. It's the same idea as, like, what if you pulled equity out of one house to be the deposit on your next house? Yeah. Yeah. So I just was just looking at a – and, again, looking at – I didn't do this. Um, I was just looking at ways where I could get leverage outside in my own name and then also get leverage inside a REIT and potentially, like, gear up returns even further because I might be running, you know, 50% debt on the REIT purchase and myself and they might run it in the fund and then it's like, wow, I've just juiced up returns. Leverage on leverage. Completely. Um, So that is something I looked at and considered in a big way. But um, the implications though, and this is where it gets really interesting, is that you can't necessarily borrow against a REIT. So if you've got a – and this goes for shares as well, just because they're so highly liquid right, and it isn't secured with a title that the bank holds like they do with direct investment. Let's say you've invested in a REIT and let's say you put a million dollars in, same example, and it's gone up in value and now it's worth two. The bank isn't necessarily going to go oh you can borrow eight hundred thousand dollars against that against that yeah no so uh my conclusion for me at my stage when i was in accumulating is i want to have as many options as i can it doesn't make sense to me to necessarily look look at that so uh, not having an equity component you might want or need access to at a point was something that i took consideration into also it was it's interesting because this has
0: popped up a couple of times in my investment journey I believe in the United States they
1: can. Yeah, the, definitely, and I uh, there's and different rulings around what you can do with their tax code. And, and this comes back to another one of the like,
0: if you're consuming information that's like not location specific, how you can get caught. I still remember being on the investment journey and uh, people coming to me asking about, uh, "Do we get a fixed interest rate on a mortgage for the life of the mortgage?" <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no that's a US. Like you've been reading US books, and so. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really glad that you walked through that one as well. It's just Australia is different or a unique kettle of fish.
1: Just to go into that a little bit further for people that don't necessarily understand, in the US, like um, their real estate market is very cash flow focused um, and their share market is very growth focused. They have like much lower dividends in general um, than you would in Australia. Australia is kind of the opposite where it's like we offer significant di- dividends and franking credits, but then our property market is set up for growth. Yep. Now, because of that, the dynamics are very different. So if you're someone in the US that wants to invest in stocks, it's like you get to run the deferred tax game very differently than you would in Australia. And I, I won't go into it, but the borrowing thing as well. Like many people will gear up their portfolios. They've got access to a, a whole range of different vehicles that we just don't have here. The financing available is magical. It got some pretty interesting financing in property as well, right? Our system is much more heavily regulated and direct. We like vendor financing is a huge thing in the states when it comes to property as well. Um, not to make this as an Australian and US <laughs> comparison, and it's not meant to be that. And I'm sure if people look into many of the things I've said in this conversation, like there's layers to what I'm saying. Definitely. These are general guidelines. I'm sure there's examples of REITs where there's a difference, and I'm sure there's examples across this conversation. But I do hope this paints a picture at a broader level for people to just gain some educational knowledge around this so they can talk to people about specific things like financial planners and whatnot. So we we touched on liquidity. Yeah. We touched
0: on leverage and sort of the leverage within. Well, you you articulated very well on the two sides of the ledger, right? Like obviously inside the REIT, they're probably going to utilize leverage, but for yourself, uh, if you're buying it with cash, you don't get that. I'm curious. Outside of us being able to select based on niche, so the national storage in this example, what influence does someone have over the specific REIT that they have purchased? And I'll paint this in a picture. So if I go and buy an investment property that's got a shitty kitchen, I'll go and renovate the kitchen and make my kitchen good. And that's the decision that I get to make. And I've got that influence and I get to drive it in that direction. Outside of me just taking my money from one REIT and move it, moving it to another REIT as my sphere of influence... What type
1: of influence does someone have over the rate now it operates, if at all? I think this is the same, you know, bringing this to a business idea. This is the difference of starting a business or investing in a business. right? Like if you were going to buy shares in CBA, right? you're not going to go in there and run the bank. <laughs> as much as gonna, we would like to. yeah. But, if, you know, <laughs> what's CBA in the business of is essentially lending. <laughs> yeah. Right. But you might go, well, if I want to be in that industry, I'll start my own mortgage broker firm. Or become a finance broker right where it's like kind of doing the same thing but it's like you've got mass control over you know if you've got a, a business of your own very different decision making that can go into it you can hire people you can market it differently like you can do things right so that's kind of the narrative there i look at um again in every strategy everyone's strategy has to become their own but i looked at it and said maybe i'm just a bit of a control freak i want more control and options But in the game of property, what I find so interesting is that if you are willing to be a bit active, there's often outsized returns available to people. Mm -hmm. Like if you're willing to buy a dump and renovate it or if you're willing to subdivide or if you're willing to take on uh, different circumstances, is you can be rewarded very strongly for that. And then the whole nature of when you buy and sell and how you approach it, I think is really interesting as well. So that would be something I would consider in a way. Something that gets probably underappreciated though is the tax side of things. I'll give you an example here, which I would just say is that in, if you're directly investing in property, um, it's a very lumpy asset class. Or if you're invested in uh, listed REITs, you can just sell off you know, 1% a year if you want. Yeah. So there are different plays and ways to approach it, which counter these, which is why for a lot of people, there might be room for both in their strategy. If they're really thinking about it. So if you're kind of not needing as much borrowing or you're done with the borrowing game, maybe potentially, and you want something that has more liquidity or versatility or enables different tax settings for you, right? REITs could be a great solution. Might be. I'm not definitely not suggesting that, but it could be.
0: I found it I find it interesting around REITs as well, of being able to dance in multiple camps and adjust things. Like nothing would make me happier than if I could just like, and not like refinance to extract out equity, but like just sell off like this percentage of, the, of my property. Just be like, cool, I'll just sell off that percentage and someone else can have that and I'll be able to use that cash to go and do another investment.
1: Think about this. Imagine being in your 60s or 70s and being able to just sell off the exact amount that kept you in certain tax thresholds. <laughs> right. And, and that's why a lot of people do it or they,
0: can, they play the game that way. That's fine. I'll just start selling rooms in the houses that I have.
1: That'll help me. Who wants to buy a room? That brings out other things, doesn't
0: it? Totally. Uh, I'm curious, is there anything related to REITs that we haven't spoken about? One of of the interesting things that you touched on was how they have to distribute uh, quite almost all of their profits, noting that... One caveat across the top of it is depending on the REIT's maturity, are they looking to acquire a boatload more assets, which means profits for that? I, I think
1: you're trying to generalize too no? much here. I really want to emphasize that it's like there's listed, unlisted, and then even within those classes, the there's so the wildly strategies. different strategies depending on what you're wanting to do. So like Totally. You know, yeah. So you can't generalize and say, oh, look, that that fits that one. And that's the generalized it'd be the same as making it on a business front. It's like pretending every company on the ASX does the same thing, that a small cap has the same outcomes as the big caps, you know, like it's or mega caps or whatever you want to say. Like it's so uniquely suited, uh, sorry, so uniquely defined by each REIT that you would really have to look at the individual one and the strategy you're trying to match it up against. And I think
0: that is the value underneath everything that we've unpicked here is that every single one is different and it has to align to your investment philosophy before you actually get into it or your your hypothesis, I should say, like where you think things are going to go. And it can be a valuable piece of an investment portfolio. It might not be. It just depends on the person's situation. But it, it there is, to your point, there is no one size fits all. It's very similar to property. It's like you go, raise the commercial, you go, you know, like your high cash flow, high growth, you've got a thousand different ways to cut them up and focus on different things and REIT sounds like it's another layer of so many more structures, niches, etc. that you just need to be aware of and understand before you get into them at all. Do you feel like there's anything that we haven't unpicked on a REIT that would be valuable for people?
1: I think for a general discussion we know it.
0: Woo! There you go. An episode on REIT, Charlie. <laughs> 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 Who would have thought? If you're listening to this and you have any anything else to add to the REIT discussion, you can head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter, put in your name and email, and reply to any newsletter at all because we're more than happy to answer your questions, hear your thoughts, or anything that we have discussed. What's the challenge? Just want to say thank you to you. And also thank you very much to all the listeners. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Property and Investing.